Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts. Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of Selling the Cloud. Today, we are joined by Michael Pollack, CEO and founder of Intricately. Today, we'll be covering four main areas. We're going to go in with Michael and understand better why he created and founded Intricately. We're going to talk more about how do you build a data company from scratch that really serves marketers and sellers in ways that data companies have not been able to do in the past. Generally, how do you, as a startup, sell a cloud product to enterprise companies, which Michael's business is built around? And we're going to go into product and product marketing and how that really should align with a revenue organization. So, Mike, welcome. And please tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to our Selling the Cloud podcast today. Absolutely. Mark and Ray, thank you for having me. Selling the cloud audience, thank you for listening. You know, to answer the first question, I don't think it's fair to say I set out to build this. I think it's worth noting I have a co-founder and he's an amazing person and he played a huge role in all of this. But I think what we set out to do was to solve a problem that I felt and experienced as a salesperson and as a sales leader. And I think what we saw and what I experienced was a lot of times in a sales role, you don't have the data to do your job as well as you'd like to. And I think that manifests in a number of different ways. It manifests when you're talking to the wrong prospect or you're trying to pitch somebody who isn't a fit. And my personal point of view is a lot of the challenges that sales and marketing feel are due to the fact that they have incorrect data. A lot of times it may not feel like that when you're in the enterprise, but when you actually look at it, you realize that that is the biggest impediment, I believe, to sales and marketing doing their job. So the main motivation behind Intricately isn't that we want to give people more data because no one ever said, hey, give me more data. That's what I need. What people say is, I'm trying to make a better decision. And data is a key part of that. And operationalizing that data and institutionalizing that data and enabling somebody to utilize that data that's the big challenge. So we built intricately, first and foremost, to make the lives of sales and marketing teams better. And that mostly means more efficient. But I'd say that was the primary motivation behind why we were so excited about this business and why we've been able to have so much success, I think, with this business. Mike, if you can just go share with the audience a little bit about your background and kind of how that all built up into the founding and building of Intricately. Sure. So I'd say I have a somewhat eclectic background in that I've had the privilege to work in a number of different roles, which I think have influenced me in a way that I think has really been helpful to my career. So early in my life and my career, I was writing software and building hardware by personality. I ended up in sales fairly early in my life. So I've sold knives door to door. I've carried the bag as an individual seller. And so my career has really gone salesperson. I transitioned into a product role at some point because my orientation is I'm a curious person. I like to understand how things work. And so what I love about selling is ultimately 
it's the best job to validate that you're actually good at product. Because if you can make something, that's one part of it. But to get somebody to give you money for it, that's a whole nother part of it. So my career went from a salesperson to a product person. I had a stint in management consulting for a fairly long period of time. And I think that was a wonderful experience teaching me about process and understanding in an enterprise that a lot of times cause and effect are easily commingled and confused. Being able to break out process, I think, is a huge part of that. I entered back into startups as a product leader and then transitioned to a sales leader where I was responsible for a team that owned 15 or $20 million worth of revenue. From there, I went on to starting startups. And so now this is my fourth time as a founder. So I would say my orientation generally just as a human is I like to fix problems. I like to work with customers. I enjoy taking customers' money when I provide something of value in exchange. And so my whole orientation usually is, where can I find a problem that I can build a solution for that is equally exciting to build a business around? And I think that unique skill set put me in a, a somewhat fortuitous position to be here today. Mike, I want to double click on the first thing you talked about was what led you to creating a data company, right? The quality mm -hmm. of the data and the efficiency that marketers and sellers can use. You know, 2020 saw an amazing validation of the need for high quality data for marketers and sellers with the Zoom Info IPO. And Henry Sheck has done a great job of building that business. Why do we need another data company, especially for marketers and sellers? Well, my first comment to that would be, we don't. We don't need another data company. And I think the, the thing sometimes you hear is people talk about data like it's oil. I think that's silly. I would say data is like water. It is everywhere. And the reality is water, generally speaking, is only really valuable in two scenarios. Number one, when you don't have any and you do anything to get some. Or number two, when that water is processed or distilled into something more valuable like overpriced coffee or fancy IPAs or champagne. And so I would say that we didn't set out to build a data company. What we do is we help people make better decisions. Increasingly, what we do is we're actually moving away from giving people raw data and moving much more towards helping people decide what action they should take. That seems like a small difference, but the distinction is very large. And I'd say, you know, if you look at Zoom Info, Zoom Info is a wonderful business. We know a lot of folks over there. Their primary challenge they're resolving for many sellers is I need the contacts. I need to figure out who to talk to. I'd say we're much more focused on the context. What do you say to that person? When should you say it? How do you say it? I think that's a bigger piece of it. And so I think the challenge you have today is with the proliferation of so many pieces of data out there, the fundamental problem I think many salespeople are struggling with is their Salesforce instance or whatever CRM tool they're using is filled to the brim with data. There's so much data in there. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to put it to work. And so I think it's not about more data. It's about better decisions. And so what we spend a lot of time thinking about with our customers and in our product is instead of just giving someone another piece of information, how can you make the task easier? How can you queue up the relevant piece of data that is worth using or can be put to work? Again, this notion of operationalizing it, that is the hardest part because just giving someone more data doesn't solve anything. And so I'd pause here and maybe even flip that back to Mark for a second in your experience and thinking about looking at large teams. And I'd love for you to share some of the challenges or experiences maybe you had with data, I don't know, data detox or almost too much data or that, that overflowing of data in your experience and how it was intended perhaps for good, but it, in reality, it was a huge challenge. 
Yeah, well, that's a great question, Mike. You know, the world is overloaded with data. Sales and marketing is overloaded. So for me, it always ties back to metrics. And if I can set up the metrics that I want to look at as a sales leader and really drive my business around, then it's relatively easy from there to get the right data to roll up. So first thing I put my focus on and where my energies really fall is to finding the right metrics that drive the right kind of revenue growth and the right type of profitability that I'm looking for. Right. What about you? I mean, RevOps Squared, you've got a business that's built around this. How do you set up all that data that's out there? Well, first of all, I love the question. In the last six months, we've conducted research on how revenue operations and marketing operations and sales operations spend their time and what's their strategic goals. So the strategic goal is to drive revenue, accelerate revenue growth, and drive pipeline. However, 72% of marketing operations people say they spend the majority of their time in data quality and data hygiene. Sales operations said they spent almost 48% of their time on data quality and data hygiene. Now we're trying to create revenue operations to integrate and align marketing, sales, and customer success. And the foundational element of that is aligning and integrating data flows. Then it's process and platforms. So I think that data speaks for itself that as an industry, people are spending way too much time on data hygiene and data quality versus marketing, selling, and satisfying customers. Yeah, and I'll tell you, normally I would go on to another question, but I got to bring this one back to Mike. This is, uh, I've got two data experts on with us today. So Mike, what's your perspective on that? Well, I'm flattered that you're calling me a data expert. I appreciate that. But something I would just point out is I actually believe there's a little bit of, I don't know if I'd call it misdirection going on, but I think there's a bit of a fallacy out there that with the rise of really powerful marketing tooling, if you look at like the rise of Marketo and some of these systems that came into being that really allowed you to do massive qualification at scale, all of a sudden the demand for data and targets from marketing really started to explode. And I believe like the fundamental fallacy here that's kind of materialized is it's not marketing's job to create as many leads as possible. I believe it's marketing's job to create the smallest number of highest quality leads. And I believe the fundamental orientation of your RevOps organization should be building the most efficient disqualification engine rather than the most quantitatively, or I guess the highest quantity of inbound leads. And I think, again, the software today lets you kind of almost weaponize to some extent how you're marketing and how you're selling and forgetting the fact that like, it's about having a good conversation with a prospect. It's about building a relationship. And I think when you use data correctly and the way we encourage many of our customers to use our product is not to target tens of thousands of businesses, but to actually disqualify the thousands you shouldn't talk to so you can spend the most time on the ones you should have better, higher quality conversations and ideally create better, more lasting customer relationships. So I think the data thing, and Ray has, the stats are mind blowing, but it just shows you the fact that you know, sales ops spends an enormous amount of time doing data hygiene, data cleaning, data munging. And part of that's due to the fact that these marketing engines, their sales engines have this insatiable thirst for continuous data rather than pausing for a second and saying, wait, wait, why are we just pouring data into this machine? And I think that's the big question that a lot of organizations don't ask is a scary question is hard. 
And just one final point, and I'll turn it back to both of you because I know you, I'm sure you have comments here is I think a lot of it comes down to incentives and a lot of the incentives for a lot of marketing leaders, I'd argue in today's tech companies are somewhat distorted. A lot of them are focused on quantity of leads rather than quality of leads and measuring quality is much harder and can be more subjective. Measuring quantity, everybody gets it. And most salespeople see that and say, hey, I want more leads because it means more commission. It's really incumbent upon the marketing lead to say, well, I can produce lower volume of leads that are higher quality and really be able to own that through the organization. I think that's truly the biggest challenge in marketing. And I talked with marketers who've been able to actually execute that. And it's so impressive, but it's really hard to do. Yeah. Do you mind if I double click on that for a minute? Please. You said something early on, and it's what we talk to all our clients about. Stop being data-driven, but become metrics-informed decision-makers. And that starts when we get brought in, we start with what are the key performance indicators and objectives at the executive table that everyone needs to share. So now we break down something called the functional silo syndrome, which will try and incrementally improve a function's outcomes, like number of leads, which to me is a pure vanity metric. But let's all rally around is what's our new customer ARR or revenue number? Or what is our customer retention goal? And that the objectives cascade down for those metrics. I'll give you a simple example. CAC, customer acquisition cost ratio, is a key enterprise valuation metric for every SaaS investor. And at every board meeting, they present their CAC ratio and CAC payback period. But if you go and talk to the head of marketing or the head of sales and say, do you own the CAC ratio? About 40% of the time, the head of sales will say, yeah, I have to present that at the board meeting. Marketing, less than 20% of the time do they say they own the CAC ratio, but it's one of the top metrics that they're being evaluated on from a company valuation perspective. So Mike, it has to start with, and by the way, it's the CEO's job to make sure that those company objectives that are measurable as far as metrics are shared across, not only the go-to-market teams, but quite frankly, it has to go to the product teams also. So that's my input. Uh, this is great. I think there's a couple points here, and then I'd like to switch us to another question. So, Mike, I did love the focus on disqualification. And anyone who listens to this podcast has heard me already say how much I love to qualify out of deals early, how much I love to not respond to RFPs, how much I love to lose, but only in one case, when I can lose fast. Because if they lose fast, then we didn't spend you know, a lot of time and energy on a deal. So I love that focus of even disqualifying, even before the three time frames that I just described, find your right TAM, your right total addressable market, find the clients that your product is going to resonate in and put more energy and focus on that. Let's switch gears a little bit. You know, I also love your point early on how your personality brought you into a sales role initially in your career. So tell us more about, you know, what traits did you have growing up and attributes that you feel made you successful in sales? But even more importantly, how many of those are trainable? How many of those can you teach your sales team to focus on or actually pull out of their personality or their overall go-to-market and make them more successful? I think that's a great question. And I think there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll answer the question about myself first, and then I'll kind of pull back and talk about what are some of the traits I've seen of successful reps over the years. The first, I think, is it probably helps that I'm, for me personally, it probably helps that I'm a little bit of an extrovert. It probably helps that I'm a little bit curious. I like to understand what people are doing. And I've always felt as a salesperson, any product I've ever sold in my life, 
I always loved. I was passionate about the product. And I think that passion is contagious. I've never been an effective seller using a sales methodology because I've never sold anything I didn't entirely believe in. And I think it's really easy to sell when you believe in the thing you're selling. The hardest sales jobs ever are when you got to sell something you don't believe in. And if you look at, and this is me taking a cynical point of view on something, but my cynical point of view on a lot of sales methodologies, it's training somebody to sell something they don't innately believe in. So you have to spend a lot of time teaching somebody, hey, look, here's why you should be confident in this. And here's why you should believe in that. And I struggle with that a little bit because I'm a transparent and honest person. And I'd rather tell somebody my unvarnished, truthful, thoughtful opinion rather than lie to their face. And so I think that gives me a unique advantage because something I've always aspired to be with my customers is a trusted advisor. If the thing I have isn't the fit for them, I gladly will tell them to go buy something else. I don't need to ram something down someone's throat. And so I think for me as an individual, it works out because I've never thought of myself as a salesperson. I've always just thought of myself as like a passionate person. And like, if I love something and I'm excited about it, I want to tell you about it and you get excited about it. And then before we know it, we both bought the frigging thing that I was selling to you. And so that's my thing. And so, you know, for me, that's been an effective way to kind of, I guess, cruise through life for that matter. But as it pertains to reps, I think sales is art and science without a doubt. The art elements are like any good artist. You, you can get better at it over time. It's the ability to listen well. It's the ability to be thoughtful. It's the ability to ask good questions. I think the biggest thing I hammer on every rep who's ever worked for me, who will tell you this or any rep I've ever seen is, ask really good questions. So that means you have to listen, but really spend the time to do discovery because everyone enjoys being interviewed. Everyone loves to get somebody to ask them about them. And so a lot of sales, I think, is just being inquisitive and curious and being able to do that in a thoughtful fashion and do that in a way where you can share some insights along the way. An idea I always took from management consulting that I liked was I always thought our job was to be intellectual bumblebees, cross-pollinating ideas from different places as we saw them. And I that always stuck in there. I just thought that was kind of cute. But I think as a salesperson, that's your job too, that you interact with lots of prospects. So if you hear something smart from one, why wouldn't you share that with another one? Why, why wouldn't you rather be known as a troubleshooter or somebody who can really add value in a conversation? To me, that is the art. That is the essence of attaining mastery in your craft. And if you sell in a specific vertical, knowing lots about the products, their pros and cons, their strengths and weaknesses, all that. To me, that is that is the art of sales. And that takes time. And generally, that's like the journeyman part of the job where you just learn more over time. The science side, I think, is really understanding the mechanics of selling, how to build a deal, what pieces need to be done, the methodologies in our business. We use MedPick, but whether you internalize that and just say, hey, that's my mental checklist to make sure I've done all these steps. There was a book I read many years ago by a guy named Atul Gawande, who's he's a fascinatingly smart individual, but it's called The Checklist Manifesto. And it's about making hospitals more efficient. And they take a lot of what they do from F1 racing or from like NASCAR racing and pit crews and how in a pit crew, when a car comes in, it's got to go out really quick. So they talk about how they use really detailed checklists. And, and in this book, Atul Gawande, who's like a PhD, MD, very smart individual, walks you through how in incredibly complicated jobs like pilots or ER surgeons or NASCAR pit crews, they go through a checklist and humans, no matter how smart you are as a human, do better when they have a checklist. To me, that is 
the science of sales. It's following your own internal checklist. It's augmenting it over time as you learn. And so I think the traits and personality, all that, I've seen salespeople of all different shapes and sizes and colors and personalities and temperaments. So I, I don't think about it like that. I think about it just as you have to be disciplined. And that's where the checklist comes in and ensuring you're following your own mental logic and inculcating whatever your organization uses. And additionally, what's specific to your product. I mean, I guess I'd flip it back to you, Mark, because I know you've worked with thousands of reps over the years. Do you have a different take on it or would you characterize it differently? No, I, I like the way you depicted it. And I like that you focused on personality traits and things that we even went deep into the book on selling the cloud on and how important empathy is. And you dove into the passion side, which is just, it's everything. And, you know, we're all very fortunate in this industry is even during a global pandemic, there is still lots of demand for great salespeople and great sales leaders in cloud and SaaS. So put that energy into picking the right firm, the right product. You know, that'll help you in every way going forward. I also just want to comment on the approach of being in management consulting, which I have been as well. And it is so important, you know, not to go into that feature function type selling approach. I mean, how many times today, even today, you still see these cloud sales teams show up with 30 slides or 50 slides about their product and their approach and hitting every angle that they possibly can. And it's not necessary. You know, you can accomplish almost any meeting you need to attend, anything you need to convey. You can pretty much accomplish that in five to seven slides, especially if you're there to listen, especially if you're there to ask questions in the way you described it as well. You know, a quick comment I just would add to that, too, that I think is important is when you think about the product you're selling, it's important that you have an opinion about it. And I think a lot of salespeople I've experienced sometimes want to act as if they're indifferent to what the product does. And again, they're just kind of pushing the product. I think I have an opinion on what we do. I have an opinion on my competitors. I think a lot of them make amazing, awesome products. And I wish we were better in certain respects. And I think part of what makes me potentially a good product person also cuts against me as a salesperson. Because when I talk to customers, I want to understand what's frustrating them. What's their challenge? And I have an opinion on, hey, I think we can make it better. I've got the benefit of, I don't know, a decade and a half in this problem space. So I've got a pretty good understanding of most of the challenges people are feeling. But I'd say for every salesperson out there, to really own your product, I think, you have to have an opinion about it. What you wish was better, what you think was worse. That doesn't mean you have to advocate or broadcast those things. But again, you want to engage in a conversation with your prospect about the challenge they have and why your solution can help remedy or resolve that. It's the same way if you were to have a conversation with a friend about a type of food you like or something like that. You think about how persuasive you are in those conversations when you actually have a dog in the race, when you actually have an opinion on the matter. And so that would be one thing I would just emphasize an asterisk and underline there. Yeah, I'd like to kind of follow on to that curiosity, which is natural for you. Passion seems like it's a very innate personality trait. Those are two of the traits I always used a scorecard as we were interviewing sales candidates. Mm -hmm. And I also, with curiosity, I talked about, are you a self-learner? Are there techniques that you use or you have your head of sales use in the interview process to try to identify that they have the right innate personality skills or culture fit to your companies? You know, it's something I've tried over the years is things we've done different things about. I'll tell you on the passion and curiosity thing in particular, I'm definitely biased towards passionate people in general. So a common interview question I might ask is like, what's something you've 
owned? What's something you've made, whether it's a hobby, whether it's a side gig, whether it's a whatever, what's something that you're dedicated enough to that you took it from nothing to something? And what's amazing is how many people, they're not passionate about anything, and which is okay. And I don't mean to disparage those people that aren't passionate about anything, but I just know I'm probably not going to work great with them. And I know I would struggle. I would have expectations for them that they may not be able to meet. On the curiosity side of thing, I think it's similar as well. It's tell me something interesting you've learned. And passion and curiosity, I find tend to overlap in some respects. If you're truly curious about something and you take curiosity on as a passion, you're going to go pursue things. You're going to read about topics that are interesting. An interview question I used for many years, and I find it tends to be very good on product people as well as salespeople is take five minutes and teach me something, anything you want, any topic you want. And you as the learner in this situation, me personally, I enjoy learning about anything anytime. So I treat it as like a selfish way to find out about something new. But in that five minutes, I've learned everything from how the mortgage market works to how derivatives are calculated to how to hit a great hockey slap shot. And you as the learner, can play smart, or you could play slow, or you could interrupt, or you could do anything that a customer might do. Because in reality, that five-minute exercise is the same thing you're doing when you're explaining to a customer, hey, you mentioned you had this challenge, and I think I've got this solution. And now we're going to take a couple minutes and figure out how we can work together to build something better. And so I would say as an orientation on passion and curiosity on our internal scorecards, we do score that for candidates and for sales candidates in particular. And there's some basic questions we can ask, but I I think anybody can become a passionate person about something. And I think you should be passionate about something. I think in this world, and particularly if you work in technology, I'm confused how you could not be curious. We're in a world where the future is literally being invented every day. How, how what do you, you just like, kind of like you just go with the flow? I, I'm trying to understand the alternative to that. And it just, it strikes me as kind of silly, but I, I think part of it is good questions. And I think, again, culture as a leader, as a CEO, my two most important jobs, I think. Number one is building the culture, getting the right humans in the door. That is just like the never ending hardest part of the job, I would say, because great humans are in short supply. We're fortunate that they're kind of remote now and they're scattered across the world. We have to work even harder to find them. But I think number one, it's finding the people. And then number two, to your point, Ray, is about the metrics. It's about the metrics for the organization for success, right? Ensuring that marketing is doing the right thing, that product is focused on the right thing, that sales is delivering the right results. There are so many metrics, noise, and data that's out there. That number two point, when I talk about metrics, it's really about focus. It's about operationalizing focus in the tangible metrics that logical business functions can get progress on and you can incent and comp people on because naturally people do what their incentives drive them to do. So my job is get the best people I possibly can, incent them to get the best possible results. And if we do that right, we get the privilege of a great outcome. And then I hopefully get the privilege to do it again, which is what I'm in it for anyway. Mike, there's some great, great points. So last question, let's go to just product marketing, marketing in general, and your thoughts on where that should fit within an organization, particularly as someone who's done that function, you've been the sales leader, you've led marketing. You know, we have a bias, Ray and I, around the president CRO type role, rather than, you know, certainly a senior vice president who doesn't have any control over marketing or any involvement, that having more efficient type of an approach. However, we're very open-minded to other thoughts. We're actually going to go deep on this in our next podcast with Paul Melchiori, who has his own views on this and views that we shared in Selling the Cloud together. What are your thoughts? 
well, I feel like I'm wading into like a really deep swamp here. So I just want to make sure I step up accordingly, but be careful, my, Michael. Yeah, 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 I appreciate that. Thanks, Ray. You know, my quick comment would be the CRO president role. Conceptually, I agree with. I'm a revenue oriented CEO, I think. I get the privilege to play in product in a number of places. But I think at the end of the day, we're running a business. This is not a not for profit. So everyone from the top down has to be revenue oriented flat out, full stop, you know, that that's how I believe the business has to work. So for us, that means my marketing leader and my sales leader, both of them are awesome, get some benefits, I think, because I'm inclined and indexed to set them up for success. Your comment of product marketing in particular is an interesting one because I find product marketing is one of these functions that changes quite a bit from when you're a small startup doing a couple million bucks to when you're like, you know, a big dog doing hundreds of millions of dollars. And that product marketing function evolves substantially. And I'll talk about it and maybe at those maturity levels and give a couple different slices and I'll turn it back to you, Mark, maybe to chime in. But my first thought would be in the earliest days, even in our business for the first couple million bucks in revenue, we didn't really have dedicated product marketing that lived actually kind of inside of customer success. And I take the point of view that customer success is a verb, not just the team who's stuck with fighting churn or some horrible setup that a lot of people think customer success people should be jammed into, but really the verb of making customers successful. So in our business where we have a high price tag, we have sophisticated customers, our customer success team is at the forefront of every engagement. They're advocating for the product and how it works and articulating that. They're building a lot of the customer facing content. So in that way, product marketing is triaged a little bit between CS and maybe a little bit sales, not not really, but over time, what we've started to evolve to as we've grown a more disciplined, dedicated product team, that function has kind of started to migrate from CS to product and then ultimately to marketing, where marketing, who really has the biggest bullhorn in the business, can really amplify some of the product marketing type content, ensure it's getting to the right channels, and really, I would say, promote that in addition to some of our content and some of our other pieces. And so I've been part of larger businesses where product marketing was like the dedicated function that basically kept tabs on the competition and spent a lot of time talking about how competitor X has bananas and we have apples, but we know that our apples are way better than their bananas. And pretty soon we're going to have pineapples. That was always like what I'd hear the product marketers talking about. I'd be like, what do you do here? What is going on? So, (laughs) you know, so I, I think... The bigger question is, what is the effective role of product marketing? Because I think the biggest transition is 10 years ago, enterprise software, I think in some respects was kind of sold like cars almost in that like you'd put out a ton of information. The expectation was like customer couldn't figure it out. So they needed to talk to a salesperson who would then explain it to them. And so the product marketing function exists to like create this whole thing of like, Again, the competitors got X, we've got Y, but you really need Z kind of stuff. And I think today's buyers, I believe, are much more savvy. I think the technology has gotten simpler. I think everyone's using SaaS in their personal daily life, so they're comfortable buying in their business life. So I think there's a much larger question here around what is really the most effective role and configuration of product marketing today, right? What is even the success criteria for that? And I think that role, that function has changed dramatically over the past decade. But on that, I'd toss it to you, Mark, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, you know, I think you hit on some of the, the most important parts. I mean, there is a point of what product marketing does. And frankly, the part of what a lot of enterprise sales reps do as well is, you know, the puck has moved on them. And you're right, 10 years ago, it was perfectly acceptable, not even acceptable. It was important to make sure you really educated your clients along the way or your prospects along the way, rather. Now they are fully educated. They have tools like G2 or whether they go to Gartner, they know in many cases, you know, I'm thinking of a company like Workday or Ultimate Software that's selling to a CHRO. And these CHROs, they know every one of these products as well as most of the sales reps in either of those companies. So it actually opens up a bigger discussion that we won't go into now about why companies like N3, you know, now acquired by Accenture, have been able to build up these great inside sales teams and replace the outside very expensive reps with younger, more focused individuals. Because at the end of the day, the clients, the prospects don't need the hand holding that they needed in the past. And rather, if anything, they're a little bit put off by it. So you end up paying a lot of money for these very seasoned, successful in the past outside sales reps that frankly, are doing, in many cases, more harm than good. But Ray, I'll pass it to you for some final thoughts and close up from there. We want to keep this in a quick time frame for our audience, although we can talk about this all day long. Well, I've been fortunate enough for the last 25 years of my operating life, I had marketing, sales, NCS slash PS, professional services. So I had product marketing. So I said product marketing, you have three primary goals and it's even more important today. Number one is education. You create content that educates the market about why our solution can impact your business and why we're differentiated. By the way, you're also educating your sales force through enablement, the second E. Product marketing is a big part of the enablement function, right? Because you're making sure the sales organization understands our messaging, positioning, value to the customer, and how we position the product, right? So those are two of the key things that I think product marketing does. And in today's world, Mark, you said most of the buying process is already done, right? 60 to 70%. That education through content has never been more important, especially as we move to a product-led growth motion as a more critical customer acquisition technique. Mike, any final thoughts? You know, I chime in one quick comment on this beat here and then I'll drop it, which is I would encourage particularly the audience listening, if you sell something and you're an enterprise seller, an enterprise marketer, pause and just evaluate how you buy in your personal life. It's interesting in my house right now, we're shopping for a new mattress which is my least favorite thing to buy ever. But anyway, the pandemic aside, I can't stand going into the mattress store. You sit on the thing, they all feel good to me. I don't know. I can't ever tell. My wife has opinions on this one. I don't. But the point is, is that we're looking at these mattresses online as well. And you look at the difference in that experience versus going into a mattress store, which I've never enjoyed ever in my life. And you just think about that microcosm of an experience happening for enterprise software. That if you Google today, best mattress, there's literally a bajillion pages of content created by modern mattress companies from Casper to Lisa to Avocado to all these companies. And the legacy vendors are struggling to fit in there. And I think that market in a microcosm explains to some extent what's happening in enterprise software and that marketing and education and all these pieces are a huge part of it. And you should assume your customer 
knows a lot about your product before they talk to you. You should assume they've done that research. And I think in the same way you're doing that research when you choose to make a couple thousand dollar purchase, perhaps when someone's making a six figure or seven figure purchase, assume that. And I think that alone, if you really take that under consideration, changes a lot of the structure that exists around enterprise selling, because a lot of that structure in the past decade, that wasn't the case. And I think the business organizations of today are just catching up to that. And I think as a seller, that represents an opportunity. If you can cut through that noise, you can be thoughtful through that. You can comment on your market. You can add value. And at the end of the day, aspire to be the trusted advisor to your prospects, to your customers. Excellent. Ray, I'll hand to you to close this down. Michael, first of all, thank you so much for being our guest on the Selling the Cloud podcast. Really great insights. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, if you got value out of this, please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and also provide your recommendations and your rating on the podcast. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Selling the Cloud. Thank you.